0: Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another SFIA monthly live stream Q&A. This is Isaac Arthur being joined, as usual, by my wife, the lovely Sarah Lane Fowler-Arthur, who will be asking us questions today. Uh, As you get queued up and ready to join us for today, go ahead and put your questions in the chat box. Our moderators will find them, reformat them where possible, and get us fed into them roughly in the order they get asked. So with all that said, let's go ahead and get started.
1: Yeah, it looks like we've got some questions coming in. And the first question we're going to do today is from Raven609. Thank you for your super chat, Raven. And they want to know what your thoughts are about human-powered flight in low gravity, particularly with pedaled propellers or wings strapped to arms.
0: Hmm. Let's see. I think the idea of flapping your wings so that uh, that you can fly, kind of like the, uh, what uh, are what a Daedalus? I- da- yeah, Daedalus and Icarus. We actually have uh, the Daedalus project, one of our names for an interstellar starship drive. We'll be discussing that for our first episode of January. Um, I don't really know if there's ever going to be a circumstance where something with the kind of mass that a human has could fly with normal wings that wasn't like microgravity or very low gravity. You could certainly do that in a habitat, but I don't think you could really do that very well in a uh, in anything but a kind of a microgravity, not only like a low gravity like MOA setup. We already kind of have
1: problems with regular gravity. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> so I guess the other thing is you also have to push forward. Everything about flight is is inertia, and your inertia doesn't change because of your gravity. Your inertial mass has to still be pushed by your ohms, which are maybe not ideal for that. Not the kind of flight speeds we usually think about here on Earth. You know, like uh, well, how fast were we, we, we were going the about other? About
1: a hundred knots.
0: Hundred knots was that? It? That's actually fairly slow. You think about, it. but. Uh, 150 miles an hour still pretty fast mm-hmm. we were up flying last week my, my wife is busy working on a pilot's license and uh just kind of did the loop around the county it's so much faster Ashbula where we live at is the largest county in ohio uh and uh not we one still toured there. the
1: entire thing yeah. in like an hour yeah
0: i don't think it was even that long to actually tour around either it's we real well around, but. that's
1: because we did almost two loops <laughs> yeah.
0: but i mean It's a lot easier to fly in lower gravity, but you still have that fundamental thing, which is that it's all about the difference in pressure between the top of the airfoil wing and the bottom. That's what's really doing your lift, and that's mostly about the thickness of the air and the pressure, but the lift you have is being counteracted by your weight, so half the weight, half the lift, you know. All right, so, what's next?
1: Well, we have a question here from Alan Crowley. Thank you, Alan, for your super chat, and he, well, actually, it's a comment. He says, keep up the good work on the show and beekeeping. Thanks, Alan. <laughs>
0: so, my wife does most of the beekeeping, too. So, um, Let's see, they are at the moment all huddling in their frames and very cold. Um, let's see, for those who, because uh, it's very hard to get access to them, everybody who watches Cody's lab has probably seen him on doing his bee stuff at times, and he has this one uh, kind of bee stuff that looks like a trough, and I think I want to build one of those come, come next year to keep them in, because it looks like it's so much easier than trying to uh, unstack the boxes to check them, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, anyway, uh, was there a question there, or was that just a comment?
1: It was a comment.
0: Oh, okay. Well, thank you for that comment. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: The first question here is going to be from Truthseeker. Do you think Mars colonies should be independent or controlled by Earth-based colonies?
0: Hmm. Um, I think that it would almost have to be control from back here it needs a certain amount of independence especially when it's not got communications you know you got that 20 minute cycle time on a message or something in that zone depending on how close or far away it is um that's not really that bad when you talk about email time that's that's you know more than quick enough for responses but it does mean that you can't have anything going on that requires them to be able to talk to us in less than a minute and so that does require a certain amount of control but not necessarily any more than you get with, well, like with our local county governments. You know, They don't call up the state every day and need a live call with the governor to figure out what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, they managed to run the thing pretty fine, I should say. So, And, of course, this stuff all predated the telephone, too. So, you know, they, it helps to have a certain amount of independence to run things, but you don't really need it that much, even for our modern kind of governmental style, not for that 20-minute or in-solar system thing. Um, and the thing people tend to forget is unless your county's got like a million people in it, it's really not all that qualified to be its own nation state and tells being things like, where's the appellate court? Or do they have a Supreme Court? Or do they have multiple doctors of each specialty? That kind of thing.
1: Um, Ian Saline, thank you. He says, what are your thoughts on the new Foundation series on Apple
0: TV? Uh, you know, I think I actually made a comment on the Thanksgiving episode that it was okay to ask about that, but I hadn't seen the Wheel of Time series yet. And I was saying, feel free to ask me about Dune. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, real of time, I'm a little disappointed, but I'm going to try back and watch it after a few more episodes and Foundation series, which uh, I didn't like the first episode, I loved the second and third episode, and then after that it's kind of weak, but you know, again, Star Trek, The Next Generation fourth season, season one, it was crap. Still a great series, you have to get the third season for it wasn't any good um, and honestly, a lot of the other Star Trek ones like DS9 and Voyage are great shows but they didn't really get their eat them until seasons two or three I'm not happy with all the changes in Foundation, but I do like what they're doing with the Emperor there. It just feels like it's a different story. Cleon is, is almost a non-entity in all of the Foundation novels, except for the, the Prelude books way later. Um, and uh, and he's dead by the time the Foundation series starts up, that particular Cleon. He is an interesting character that they made, though. That almost seems like a different TV show. I don't mind that adaptation because it's kind of cool, but I'm not too happy with all of the other ones because it seem to be removing almost the entire concept of actual psycho history from the show in favor of just putting math up on the screen and say, look, math. <laughs> so, <laughs> but and you're uh, kind
1: of a mathy kind of guy. So. Well, yeah, but it's
0: not even real math. It's just stuff up on the screen. So, uh,
1: <laughs> distracting math.
0: Yes. But, yeah, you know, they are definitely doing a lot more interesting world building there, and uh, there's some, some material that is good. So I'm going to give them at least two seasons before I write them off, but I'm a little disappointed with them thus well.
1: All right, our next question is from Jeffrey W., and mm-hmm. he says, How far off are Space Labs 3D printing in OG?
0: Zero-G printing. That is actually, well, by the way, the Dune movie, because I was going out awesome, if I didn't always say that. love that. I was a big fan of the original, too, so it had to really get up there for me. It was like my second favorite movie after Blade Runner. Best sci-fi movie I've seen in at least a decade. Um, okay, so printing in zero G is actually a little bit trickier than it sounds like because everything we do right now is based off the idea that stuff's coming down off a nozzle to drip into place, basically. So that's going to require a lot of actual real calibration there. Though you could potentially run it in like a centrifuge. Obviously, that's an option too, but that might screw up on some things too. That's the only real hoarder to doing one up there. We, we, I believe, we took a three D pen up there and did some stuff already with one. But it's not going to be too hard to actually set up. I think there, in some ways, it should be easier for certain projects, but. Mostly it's a practice thing. Within a decade, we should have all the bugs that are specific to zero gravity worked out.
1: Okay. Uh, Jay Lambert says, Could stars hidden by advanced civilizations account for dark matter?
0: Um, This is actually a really popular question because the idea is, hey, we're putting a Dyson sphere or Dyson swarm around a star, um, and uh, maybe that's why we can't see them. And there's all this missing matter. And the problem is no, because... First, it would imply that at every age of the universe, right, for every place in the universe we can see, and for every part of the galaxy, they basically distributed the stars they chose to dice it up uh, exactly how we would expect them to have done dark matter from even so early on that we wouldn't expect any stars to exist yet for them to dice it up. So no, it doesn't work. Could they be like a percent of the overall? Yeah, sure. Same as like black holes that are smaller than we expect to find but not quite in the right range there's a lot of things that could contribute just a little bit to dark matter and uh, be mundane but none of them are even in the zone to be able to do what we find which is like a 5 to 1 ratio of matter to, to dark matter and um, the other thing to keep in mind is that when you do Dyson swarm up a star or do almost the other kind of engineering with a star you're not actually making it dark you're just changing the spectrum it comes out at it's kinda like saying that you can't detect a a frying pan because you put a welding torch on the in-between you and Ed, and now you're looking like, aha I can't see this welding torch because I'm covering it with the frying pan. It's still very detectable. <laughs> you know, it's very hot, you can see it, it will eventually glow visibly, but it's glowing in the infrared in the meantime. And that's basically what it comes down to.
1: Don't do that with any of my frying pans. No. <laughs> <laughs> trusty source says, the universe is 13 billion plus years old and I'm alive at this time to witness the, this majestic stream. My question is: What do you think humans will do first—mine Earth's core or asteroids?
0: That may be one of the most impressive comments I've ever. Heard about. <laughs> I'm what was the actual question again? Now, <laughs> busy being flattered. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, what do you think humans will do first—mining Earth's core or asteroids?
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, it's really hard to mine Earth's core without, I mean, certain types of materials that I don't think we're going to get in the next decade or two. Essentially, if we have a situation where suddenly spaceflight gets a lot cheaper, we asteroid mine. If on the other hand we suddenly get very good metallurgy and active support structures, like the methods we talked about for drilling gigantic holes into the planet in the Accessing Earth's Core episode, then we do that first. But my hunch would be that we would do asteroid mining long before we ever did Earth's Core. Especially because People are going to be a lot more hesitant to be like, Hey, uh, we'd like to machine gun the planet with nuclear bombs to drill a hole in there and let out a massive volcano. You guys okay with that? No. No. Okay. So, <laughs> so there might be a little bit of an absorption factor, whereas I don't think they really care if we mine asteroids unless we try to bring them home to refine them, which we wouldn't because it's a waste of fuel. So asteroid mining forest, probably. <laughs>
1: All right, Stephen Pilling wants to know if you subscribe to the theory that Venus was habitable until recently.
0: Um, I guess it would depend on how recently.
1: Oh, he says fairly <laughs> recently, sorry. Until fairly recently.
0: Um, <laughs> that's pretty hot. I would assume that it hasn't been habitable for at least as long as humanity's been around just because otherwise you'd probably see all the evidence and debris of some collision having happened. The usual assumption, which there was a lot of debate about obviously because we got about Jack for evidence, is that uh, Earth's, sorry, Venus's slow spin is caused by some collision at some point in time. Whether that was shortly after the formation of the solar system or shortly before we had uh, the ability to track astronomy is very hard to say. Um and truly, be told, a detonation like that of it occurred in anything approaching recent times, and I mean even, you know, in, in the geological record, would probably show up on Earth as a cloud of debris too, because that's just such a you know, you talk about slowing a planet down. That that energy involved in rotation is actually very pale larger, to its orbital energy and the energy you need to take it apart with like a death star. Very big you know, very big use of energy. Like a week's worth of solar energy. So it's big, right? But uh my hunch would be no, not, not any time in the last millions of years.
1: Okay, the next question here is from Nigligador. I'm sorry, I don't think I pronounced that right. Nig, n- Yeah, anyway. In wants to know, what methods of manufacturing do you think that Kardashev type 2 and 3 civilizations have at their disposal? Nano assemblers, an advanced form of today's manufacturing methods, or something else?
0: I think one thing we always kind of want to jump on right from the get go here is, is the correction of anything being a, you know, any K2 or K3 status having anything to do with technology. Um, for the longest time, we had a ban on mentioning any type of uh, K, any number above three, except for K9 because it made for good jokes, on our futurism forum on Facebook just because people were using it as basically, oh, how, what would super advanced godlike aliens do? To which the answer is, at that scale, what do they feel like, right? Um, when we're trying to talk about defined boundaries, we will have nanoassemblers if there's something we can make before we actually have any reason to need a Dyson Swarm. Uh, with the possible exception of if we is actually something like Skynet and the reason why it needs them is because it wants to build itself into a machosco brain in the next few centuries. Um, it's not likely there's going to be too much technology of the kind we've already dreamed up that actually operates on known physics. That we won't have gotten or gotten something better of this more practical in the next century or two. Uh, It's just, we can see that far out, it's hard for us not to get there. Nano assemblers are something we might discover in the next decade. It might be this upcoming century. Whatever it happens to be, it's not going to be one of those things that requires you to have settled the entire solar system or galaxy to get there. So, as to the basic idea is, though, that Kardashev scale is about how much energy you have at your fingertips. And while that tends to imply a lot of solar, you know, a lot of technology and things like that, there is no correlation. It's probable, in my guess, that you probably plateau on technology before you ever get to K2. Uh, you know, that you just got whole new levels of physics that, you know, we can't even contemplate discussing by now. So,
1: All right. I'm going to put out a request that people not use acronyms because I can't interpret them all correctly but uh, we have a question here from chris richardson he says hi isaac and sarah greetings from a chilly uk tonight considering budget and current advancements in technology what system do you think could replace conventional rocketry for leo first
0: okay so for everybody else who doesn't know on that one leo leo low earth orbit Mm is the area that's about uh i guess 200 miles to about 1,000 miles up Give or take, look up on Wikipedia if you want, though I don't know if it's actually rigidly defined. Usually things which have an orbital time of a little over two hours or less. Medium orbits up to about uh, like 10,000 kilometers, and then high orbits everything else up to geostationary at 40,000 kilometers or 24,000 miles, something like that. Don't quote me on any of those numbers. Um, ways to get to low Earth orbit that would be likely to happen other than rockets. The big thing about orbital rings as well, I've, I've actually seen some pretty impressive designs in more recent years of people kind of screwing out the idea of putting an orbital ring up in the next few decades at a reasonably, you know, low scale bootstrapping approach. Uh, however, I generally tend to be of the opinion that if you're looking for something that's not a rocket launch to space in the near future, it's probably going to be a scramjet, kind of like that microwave scramjet approach we've looked at in space planes, possibly combined with a skyhook, or it's going to be somebody going for the, the mass drive or space catapult approach. Um, the orbital ring and the space towers, they just require, uh, well, first they, they really work their best if you have superconductors, warm temperature or not, that you can actually build reasonably cheaply, and something that's a better magnetic shield than moon metal. Um, and then if you've got those, they're all about throughput. An orbital ring is like a railroad or a freeway. You build them to places where you're moving a lot of stuff and they're not profitable to build under most glances until you're there. Right now, we are taking the the pontoon airplane out there that can land anywhere on uh, on some random body of water, and that's what we're using uh, to explore this new area. Later on, when there's suburbs and cities there, that's when you build the four-lane highway, and that's the orbital ring.
1: Sounds like a really great analogy. Um, Hope so. Algorn Dionza says, Thank you, Isaac and Sarah. I enjoy the fun science and the banter between you two. Brightens up my day. Bless you and your family, and happy holidays.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Um, Floor Horbeck, If we were to able to create a bubble of electroweak force around a spaceship and heat up the universe in front and around, could we use a quark-gluon plasma drive to travel faster than light?
0: No. Right. <laughs> Let me qualify that by a little bit because that that one's got so much to unpack on it that I'm not sure I'd want to try to do it on the spot anyway. But I can't think of anything that would come from getting us up to anything else than a Planck temperature, uh, which is the maximum temperature you'd have in the universe in theory, that would actually have any kind of real warping effect on something like space-time. Um, and in the context that, temperature, energy density kind of things can obviously warp space-time too. Um... I really don't see how that one would work, but I'd probably have to think about it more before I just give you an absolute definite no.
1: WH Colors nine nine nine. When you think of practical ways to harness energy throughout humanity's future expansion into the stars, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
0: <sighs> when I think of practical ways to
1: harness energy. Okay. Throughout. I was hum- I was.
0: Um, possibly because I just got done recording the episode for the future of solar power so that's out in sometime in January or February probably February at this point um, power satellites are really one of my go-tos for real power adaptation solar in general if you would asked me 10 years ago about solar I would have said eventually but probably not for a couple more decades and that it was getting overhyped um, I would say that, that that we've we're still in the hyped phase but we are definitely past the extreme overhyped phase the next step is do we get batteries next or do we get really compact reliable molten salt generator sweepers houses next or it's the exact kind of format that's going to run into for what's the thing that gets you through the cloudy days and that could be like well we'll discuss in that episode but that's going to be the other half of that equation whether it's batteries or solar you know uh, you know power satellites microwave beaming nuclear power etc
1: all right um Keelan1 says, How would a Dyson swarm be set up around close, medium, and far binary systems?
0: Okay, well, for context, there is some disagreement sometimes on what qualifies as close, medium, far. Um, for the record, the Proxima Centauri system around Alpha Centauri and, and its two bits we're not even sure if that's actually part of that same solar system but that would definitely be on the far side but usually we'd say close if you couldn't actually get a planet in there at all if the two stars were you know, mercury distance from each other or less or maybe a bit more medium is when you could actually have a planet system around one but not much of one like maybe each of the two stars has a planet or two orbiting there or a few AU apart or whatever and then far would be anything past maybe 20 AU um the difference then is exactly what they are with the planets, right? If you're trying to make a stable Dyson Swarm, and and this is even the point of being semi-stable like you get with two binaries, it gets a little tricky. Um, you probably are going to always want to do it around both of them if, if they're closer than, say, 10 AU. You'd probably just be better off putting them around each one. Or maybe putting your main thing around the bigger one and the smaller one is strictly a solar collector setup or something like that. Uh, maybe a little closer than that, but otherwise I'd say any time you are starting out to the stars closer than Saturn is to our Sun, build it around the whole thing. And that obviously depends on whether they appear of red dwarf binaries or if there's some, you know, Spiker class ones, so.
1: Alright, we get some unique names on here. The Withering Liberal wants to know if since the Sun is moving in the Milky Way, isn't its light, or part of it anyway, moving faster than the speed of light?
0: What was the first half of that sentence?
1: Since the sun is moving in the Milky Way, isn't its light, or part of it anyway, moving faster than the speed of light?
0: No. Now, light can never move faster than itself, of course, for one thing, but uh, the Milky Way, things opening the Milky Way are really not opening all that much faster than things that open our own sun do. That's why it takes, like, 200 million years for a sun to go around. The highest speeds you really see out of anything in, you know, you know, solar system, that's all in the galaxy is, you know, a few hundred kilometers a second, right? Yeah, some things that are north of that, but that's because they're ejected object on so we have the galaxy that's been kicked out by perturbation, right? Um, and there is definitely an actual time lag involved. If you look at the core of the galaxy versus where we're at versus out on the fringes, time runs at different speeds there. And enough that you you could actually not really measure it on your stopwatch, but probably don't need the full-on atomic clock setup up if you wanted to be patient. Um, but uh, they're still talking about very slow speeds in terms of the speed of light. Uh, 300 kilometers per second is still 1,000th of light speed and you'd barely have any real time dilation from that alone. Um, so no, and then the other aspect of that is if you are thinking about it in context of like is the light from the sun uh, going faster than light relative to something that's expanding away from us, that's not really how that process works, and again it slows how quickly light would get to distant objects, not speeds it up, so.
1: Okay, well while we're on the topic of faster than light, we've got a question here from Tumen as well. Isaac, you have said that faster than light travel is probably impossible, but of the different theoretical faster than light methods, what do you find most plausible?
0: Um, most plausible? I mean, I, I kind of feel like even answering that's a little bit uh, uh, problematic because there's there's going to be a change in laws of physics that would make some undefiable. that viable. Um, I don't think that anything that allow you to violate causality is ever going to be possible. So probably only something like a congruous hyperspace jump, right? If we have a multiverse setup or another alternate realities kind of setup where you could just do the page turning, like we looked in the forty not the forty space episode, sorry, the edge of the universe episode. That's a nominal hyperspace episode. I say that's probably your you're one I'd find most plausible to function without some kind of horrible paradox attached. And there's a thing to remember, I I think, you know, you have something like a quantum drive that might find the one way in the universe rules you could suddenly drop from one side of the universe to the other, but it might also erase you from history in the process, or find that one backwards reality that makes your event having never taken place, which includes no life on your planet ever existing, you know? (laughs)
1: Um, from Albert Jackinson, good afternoon Albert, he says, good afternoon Isaac and Sarah, apologies if my question is slightly broad, how would something similar to a Space Coast Guard work and would that structure make any sense in the first place?
0: Oh my, um, hmm. Well, first, uh, as next army person, let me go ahead and give props to anyone who actually is Coast Guard out there. It is probably one of the least uh, applauded services that actually works towards them to on a daily basis, even in garrison. So, very dangerous job, though, mostly for Mother Nature, but she's really deadly, so <laughs> no, it shouldn't be a lot. lot. As the Coast Guard set up, the biggest issue you're going to have with the kind of the classic thought there of them like running up and grabbing your ship is that everything's slow in space because it's so huge. I mean, everything's moving, you know, a hundred times faster than you ever do on Earth, but it's so slow because even trying to rendezvous with something that was as close as, like, the moon was, um, is going to take you hours. Um, and, I, even a full-on Dyson or Karshev 2 setup in the inner system right where Earth's at, you might have people who are able to get to things in, the you know, minutes, but that would be kind of the, the localized exception. And in that setup, you might actually have the kind of classic Coast Guard, with a you know the little kind that runs out and grabs people off the ship when it explodes. Otherwise, think of them as the folks who go into the debris, scattered over several you, you know, cone, and try to pick out the life pods and the frozen bodies that they can revive via you know advanced technology. <laughs> or just the heads. I always like the idea that that's the, the, the one thought for like best life support would be that your your spacesuit cuts your head off and <laughs> just keeps the helmet in there. So. <laughs>
1: That's disturbing. (laughs) Uh, A efficient. (laughs) Jim Whitehead, are you happy that NASA is experimenting with slamming a satellite into an asteroid? Yes. And then he comments, it's about time.
0: Yes. (laughs) I... It was probably fairly unfair to President Obama. I don't know the exact headline, but like the day after he got his, uh, or the same day he got his Nobel Prize, was when NASA was ramming a, a uh, satellite into the moon to see what it explodes as, and, it, and so somebody done a dual headline. Uh, President Obama gets nominated for Peace Prize, or Peace Prize on the side. United States bombs moon. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, a uh,
1: memorable he- headline.
0: Uh, certainly, it's a good payoff But I mean, that's kind of a hard joke to resist doing. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, of course, rammed the moon because we wanted to see what was underneath the crust in a way that we really couldn't even do by sending astronauts back to drill there. Uh, but, you know, when you ram a satellite into something, that is very energy intense. You know, like a 100-kilogram satellite spike is coming in at hypersonic velocity, it's going to leave a nice trail of dust for you to examine. And I'm glad we're finally going to get around to blowing up some asteroids, too, <laughs> just on principle.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure what
0: science is going done by that, but it still sounds cool.
1: Well, let's hope it's something productive. <laughs> Nick Zink says, Is it possible to artificially create multiple habitat planets within our solar system by dismantling other planets and having them house life for billions of years?
0: I mean, one of the things that comes up, folks will say, "Well, what if we, uh, what if we took Venus, you know, or what if we took Mars and add some of the asteroids to it?" Um, Mars' entire mass plus the entire asteroid belt still would not be very noticeably more massive because the asteroid belt weighs an eightieth of what our moon does, which is an eightieth of what we do. If you jammed every one of the moons and asteroids together except for Venus, right? That was in our solar system. All your Ganymedes, Plutos. You know, all those all those objects, Mercury included, and Mars included, you come with one other planet that was in the Venus Earth mass category. So it's not really an efficient use of mass if you're trying to build large planets. If you are trying to build lots of large planets, then you have of course the classic shellwood options we look at, which is where you go ahead and disassemble something like Mercury or Venus to use as the crust of a large hollow planet that you filled up with something like Dense helium or, or, or hydrogen, which are plentifully available in large quantity, or even a black hole, which is a, you know a, a good way to make sure you have to worry about the pressure differences of using like a hot gas. And people would usually say, well, isn't that a little bit dangerous to have this planet full of hot gas or a black hole? And we say, sure. It's got a nice core floating on top of this hot gas or this black hole, and that's not really more dangerous than floating on our current core of superheated liquid metal that's highly radioactive. Kay. So...
1: <laughs> Oh, well, when you put it that way. <laughs>
0: yeah. In that context, it's pretty safe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Thomas Whitfield wants to know, what order you recommend a newcomer to your channel watch your videos? From oldest to newest, or what series would you recommend first?
0: Uh, definitely not oldest to newest. I, I have the chronological like playlist available to people, and I always add each new episode to it, but that's really more for nostalgia moments for folks who want to go back and like binge it. Um, I wouldn't really suggest watching any of the episodes prior to like the middle of season two, uh, like episode fifty or so. That's when we start kind of getting better audio and visual. It's actually a little bit painful for when you watch all season one stuff just because the AV is pretty bad. Um, that's back when I used to do a lot of the animations too, but <laughs> which I'm not very good at. Um, let's see. If I was going to suggest a place to start, what I what I usually is look through the last twenty videos. Right, look through the last twenty. 25 videos that are at the top list for YouTube. Um, see which of those grab your eye, and then go look at playlists to see which one they're part of the playlist of, and that's probably a good place to start. And then feel free to skip the first couple episodes of the AVs, not too good, because a lot of those playlists began, a lot of those series began when the audio wasn't too good. Upward Bound and Outward Bound, though, are the two series that I would usually say are like the first ones you can watch all of, even now, with good good production value. The For Me Paradox series, if you don't mind skipping the Force video, it's pretty good, too. So
1: <laughs> I think this is a good question to go to break on. We have a super chat from Merv Johnson. Thank you, Merv, for your donation. And he says, as an evil crowdfunded AI, what's on your Santa Claus machines production queue?
0: What is on my Santa? See, I have this problem is I try not to think about Christmas too much in advance or birthdays because once I have the gift for somebody, I want to just give it to them right away so they keep the maximum time out of it. And so I actually have a note on my wife's birthday, for instance, that comes up in advance, and for same for Christmas, get her a gift specifically on this date. Do not give it to her before then. Right, uh, because
1: you like to spoil it by giving,
0: giving it to, it to, it to me
1: oh, early yeah. or you know weeks in advance, <laughs> and then the birthday is not as entertaining. Um,
0: and so I, I I don't actually do too much shopping for anyone. I know very well, and for the most part, my wife selects a lot of our our ones we get for closer friends. We're doing going away for the old Christmas call soon, so Um, that's the one I'm probably paying most attention to at the moment. But I would say
1: they involve electricity, technology.
0: They do involve electricity and technology in many cases. And
1: old-fashioned hands-on skills.
0: There we go. (laughs) 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 uh, Also. Weapons of Mass Destruction, so for, but only for a selected small group of people, it's on the A-list we call it. <laughs> We're gonna go ahead and go to break, we'll see you in about 4 minutes. So we are halfway through today's show and we'll be taking a break for a few minutes, and I thought it was a good time to discuss a question that comes up in various forms but is a bit too short for its own episode, and that's basically whether or not you would use energy weapons on a planet or some form of bullet or shell. Laser rifles are a staple of science fiction, but the truth is they are very limited in range for use in an atmosphere and their big advantage is they move really really fast, as fast as you can see them coming. See the Laser Pistols and Lightsabers episode for more discussion of their pros and cons. However, they cannot be used to shoot over a horizon, for instance, which a projectile like a bullet can do, and speed is less of an issue here. As an example, here on Earth where your horizon is only about 5 kilometers for someone at head height viewing a flat expanse, light needs only 17 milliseconds to cover that distance, but modern bullets often move at an order of kilometers a second, and rarely can you see unhindered to the natural horizon, so that speed issue isn't as big a deal. However, some high-tech non-chemical projectiles like an electromagnetically propelled bullet or self-propelled bullet, driven by minuscule amounts of antimatter rather than gunpowder, might achieve velocities of tens or even hundreds of kilometers a second. Now generally if you've got a battery able to be manned portable enough and able to discharge fast enough to make a laser rifle possible, you could also use it, and mostly more energy efficiently, to fire metal slugs electromagnetically. So this would seem to make projectiles more useful for combat on a planet but there is one big problem. If your bullets are moving faster than escape velocity, they won't hit a target over the horizon either. They'll fly into an orbit or escape trajectory, and of course, none of this helps hit a target behind an obstacle like a wall. And unless your enemy is stupid or superbly armored they are going to take advantage of cover. Now, usually, the answer to hitting someone behind cover is just to suit so much or so hard that it pierces through. But a better method for performance is probably to have your bullet come around and hit the obstructed target from a direction it is not obstructed from. With that in mind, you opt for bullets that are either essentially micro missiles with their own rocket flame, which also helps to minimize kick in the gun, or something smart, able to determine distance and potentially change its form to become narrow and skinny, or wide and angled like wings or a parachute to maneuver in the air, and potentially slip into armored targets as a tiny long needle, then spread itself wider inside to shred the target up. Now This is even harder on an airless moon or asteroid with even lower gravity and escape velocity, which is virtually every rock in the Universe, big planets like Earth being pretty rare. Though as a side note, most guns contain their own oxidizer and do not need air to fire, and thus can fire underwater or in the vacuum as a result. This raises one other weapon approach though, which is good for dealing with armored targets. Imagine you had a torpedo that intentionally shot past its targets, then fired a gun at their less armored flanks or back. This is something which we contemplate with a bomb-pumped laser, single-use lasers powered by a nuclear blast that pumps out an enormously powerful laser beam in the barrel instant before the blast shreds the device. And we envision these on missiles or torpedoes for big spaceships battling over thousands or millions of kilometers. We could create this at a smaller scale with antimatter or antimatter catalyzed fusion, but we could also imagine a bullet that was essentially a gun barrel itself, able to turn and firing a smaller board at the back of the target as it flew past, somewhat akin to a tank saber round. So the takeaway is that we may see a lot of use of classic bullets and directed energy weapons in the future, but that when we start talking about smart weapons this might be the kind we really see, ones that basically fire guns or other weapon platforms themselves rather than simple slugs. Alright, with that said, let's get back to the show and back to more of your questions. So, an interesting one that was from Silver Hollow. Thank you for your donation. It says, Inspired by your break message, I'm of the opinion that every weapon is an energy weapon, just sometimes the energy is more kinetic. And yes, that's a fair point uh, that you definitely have all these types of energy based weapons. I suppose some might be strictly non energetic, something like psychological warfare. If uh, you guys have seen that uh, Rick and Morty episode where uh, Summer was, you know, keep someone safe, she's in his car while they're in his, well, call battery trying to uh, enslave a bunch of people, Uh, so (laughs) they always see it strictly being used as psychological warfare, so I guess that wouldn't be as energy intensive.
1: (laughs) That's a little crazy. (laughs) Alright, thank you Dave Tuttle for your super chat, and he wants to know what your recommendation for the best pan galactic gargle blaster recipe is.
0: Um, I think it involves a lemon being ripe, so you get a lemon, you get some lemon slices, and you wrap it around a large gold brick, uh, and then you whack someone across the head with it. That's apparently the normal description of a pan goggle blaster. Well, my wife's staring at me like I'm insane, because she's not actually read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yet, so which I was just ah. telling her the other day she really needs to listen to the audio drama for that. So, <laughs> uh, Although, I don't know that anyone who's actually listened to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy would actually still not think the stuff in it was insane, but uh, I would definitely say that It makes it sound a little bit less like you're insane when making references
1: to it. That you have (laughs) friends. (laughs) right. Jamal Inusa says, Hi Arthur, greetings from Ghana. My question is, how long till we get the type of metaverse meta is promoting now? How will it affect society and what types of technology will be needed to achieve it?
0: I actually have no idea of what the reference there is to. um, If somebody knows what that is, can you of post it in there and just kind of shoot that back up if, if we what the metaverse being referenced is, I, I don't know.
1: OK, sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no
0: problem.
1: Uh Kev V, do you think we'll ever improvise spacesuits in space or on asteroids?
0: Improvise them? Um, I mean, you're going to have to, at some point in time, improvise spacesuits to your local c- location a little bit more. But uh, I think that's, if people out there use them a lot, they're going to improvise both solutions to them on the spot. That's just kind of how that works out. Um, but. You know, like, do you want one that's lighter or leaks air a little faster? really depends a lot on your circumstances. How much weight on tail is okay, how much UV it deflects. That's all very specific to your circumstances and what you need to do.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Danger noodle. Thank you for your super chat. <laughs> what?
0: The name's always. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, I think that's what it says. <laughs> I mean, could be a spaghetti noodle that's going to get eaten. It's in danger.
0: <laughs> okay. What was the question?
1: So yes, a question. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Isaac. I am curious about black holes and time dilation. Since time slows down the closer you get from a black hole, is it possible that you can never reach it, is it as time becomes still?
0: Um, no, because we usually hold the pulmon that freezes is, is at that very central point. But the one thing I always say about stuff like this is that it's very dependent on, on how people choose to look at problems with infinity. Uh, singularity is a topological concept. Right? You hear it used in a lot of other things, but it, what it means is poorly defined, which is, to say, our current math on it doesn't actually make sense. Uh, examples of singularities are the corners of a cube. Try to describe the corner of a cube properly in terms of where you're at on one of the three sides, and it gets a little confusing, right? Um, as you're approaching the black hole, time slows down, and you're going ever faster, so you're covering distance even faster, and it's basically a Zeno's paradox thing, but the thing is, we know what the answer to Zeno's paradox is. If you take a step towards the wall, and then you take a step that's half as long as another one, and you take another step that's half as much, you still get there. Right? That's how that ends up working out in terms of practical reality. Always be wary of any solutions that involve infinity, zero, or one. <laughs> so, like, how do you ever know if two electrons have truly got exactly equal mass, for instance?
1: Here's another interesting screen name: Moop.
0: Moop. Okay.
1: <laughs> Isaac, what's some good military sci-fi that doesn't uh, suck? Something along the lines of armor or spaceship troopers?
0: Oh, starship troopers is yeah. good. Um, that would be a good example of one that doesn't suck. <laughs> David Weber writes some really good stuff. I've heard a lot of people give compliments to John Ringo. I, he's been on my list to watch forever, and I keep forgetting. Marky Cooper's Mukiari Wars is another good one, uh, although I haven't caught up the series since book 4 came out. Um... I would, I would list those as really good ones to start off with. David Webb, oh, maybe David Drake has also listed that, though I mostly know him for some of his fantasy work. And Schlock Morsenary is apparently a very popular one on comics. but there's, there's a lot of them. Those will get you a good place to start, though. I'd definitely say David Webb would be the one I'd start first with, though.
1: Okay. <laughs> this is an interesting question. And I can already guess your answer So maybe I'll have to answer it for you This is from C.R. Smith Will it be possible to eat aliens? And your answer is (laughs) It depends
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well it it does depend Um, You know it's it's always possible to eat something if you want to enough, right? let's, let's leave it there. Whether or not it's going to be healthy for you to eat that depends entirely on your civilization's level of technology. So I want you to imagine a very gastronomical race that really believes in going around the universe and sampling the cuisine of their neighbors. Right? They can find a way to eventually find something that's probably not lethal to them in terms of actually eating it, tasting it, and not falling over dead. Um, Although, as we usually say, you want to be really careful because they're going to be so many microbes and differences there. Because, like, was it for one episode, alien beer It's a real killer?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Frank Frankly, I love your videos and I found the Self-Replicating Machines video and have been a fan ever since. I'd love to see a part two focused on Berserker probes. He's a big fan of The Forge of God and The Anvil of Stars books. Yeah.
0: Uh, those are good ones, too. Uh, oh, that's what it was. Alien beer. It's to die for. That was... <laughs> <laughs> and the joke being that we could tell people not to eat alien cuisine food, but someone would end up borrowing the stuff like moonshine and bringing it through, you know, the back channel and then you end up with some horrible plague overrunning your planet from that. Um, Forge of God is a good one. Uh, and so is Anvil of Stars, obviously. Uh I think one of them was our Book of the Month sometime back. Um, but I can't... Oh, Berserker Pose, Yeah. So... I think that was Fred Cyberhagen. I can never remember if i am pronouncing his name right. Uh, he does a lot of fancy work, too, like Book of Swords, uh, that came up with the actual term, uh, bazooka Probe, but don't quote me on that. It might have been Paul Anderson. Um, the basic idea is this is a Von Norman probe that goes out there, and its only job is to kill stuff that is not on the approved list. Um, and uh, there's often concerns like a terraforming probe would act like a Berserker probe, too, because it goes around and says, well, this planet isn't really human-compatible, and we want to get nice and human, so let's kill everybody on it. Um, And, uh... There is often an argument as to if any probe that was actually capable of taking action would not automatically count as a Berserker probe, too. Um... I would tend to assume self-replicating probes that are designed to do more than replicate very carefully just for probing would generally be on that list of things that polite civilizations don't throw out into the galaxy, too. Um... I think the Berserker probes are probably counterindicated, though, because you can have them just take a little bit of space apart to make just what weapons they need, and we do have an episode coming up that discusses that. We Um but uh, what was it, belligerent aliens? Oh no, that wasn't. It was a different, different aliens one. By and large, if you actually had a Berserker probe loose in the Universal Galaxy, the format you'd expect to take was disassemble everything to make guns. That way, there's no one to act, no place for anyone to actually live on or hide behind and you have a lot of um to deal with any place that you might have forgotten.
1: <laughs> um, David Richer has a question similar to some of the ones before the break. Could alternate universes account for the mass of dark matter?
0: Hmm. Um. No, but dark energy, potentially. There is a tendency to, to confuse dark matter and energies that they're related. They are, well, they could be, because we don't know enough to say they definitely are not, but... Basically, what they have in common is that they're mysterious, and, and there's lots of them. And um, dark matter is probably nothing more than weakly interacting particles that are weakly interacting in common, um, like neutrinos, or honestly like a lot of matter. Um, the uh, you know another thing to keep in mind is we have got a lot of quarks. We got six types of quarks, and and uh, three types of neutrinos, and three types of you know uh, you know that's it's whole. But I can't uh, leptons besides those like the Electron, tauon, and Muon, and they really don't get used in matter besides the up-down ones and the, uh, and the Electron. So, for all we know, Dark Matter could turn out to be some weird combination of those that's metastable. Um, but odds are it's just some kind of weakly interacting particle that we're not familiar with. It's like the Neutrino. Most of the quarks actually weigh more than, you all know, in that mass range really could do that. Um, as to all the universes being part of that matter effect, I wouldn't think so. Not the way the distributed was really close to galaxies like Halo. It's just, the way dark matter is distributed, and we can not detect it in the gross sense, it acts exactly like something that doesn't like to interact with the particles to accrete like a disk around a black hole would and just revolve around the galaxy as a big sphere. So,
1: All right. Law of Improbability. Would social competition avoid the presumed bias towards long-term population growth in post-scarcity civilizations?
0: Um, hmm... I don't think it would. Um, I mean, there's—it's it, kind of one of those things where it's, it's a little like the basic concept of evolution itself, or statistical odds. You really should never expect any protracted period of time going on where there's not a clear advantage to it, without it not happening. Right. As long as you've got a good amount of resources to work with, and it's advantageous to have more folks around, you're pretty much always going to head to that direction unless people really want them not to. And you have to ask, well, why wouldn't they want them to? And that it's gotta be a good enough excuse to like go to war over in a lot of cases too, not just well I feel like I'm you know in a population of eight billion I just don't feel as special as I did in a population of a million. That one's not gonna really fly when you start trying to make laws about it. It's like well why should we ban more people? We got plenty of resources and food to give them with all these new wars and someone's gonna say well, I just don't feel that important anymore if there's so many more people. And I think most of us would respond if we kind of sympathize with that. Uh, too bad. <laughs> so. And I don't think that that would be the case in terms of, of countering population growth.
1: Johnny Wings, hi Isaac and Sarah. I love the show. You mentioned that you're doing an episode on the Orion Project soon. Given it's a great power and energy density, could it start orbital infrastructure?
0: Um. I mean, in the Orion Project episode would be the very next... It's the very first episode of the next year, so the one that's not actually up on the screen as we go through. I can, can vertical farming up right now. we got everything up through the very last episode of the year. Um, the Orion Project, to me, is almost something you would never actually do in low orbit. Uh, I, I would even not be surprised if the nuclear package was delivered to the ship by railgun off the moon after it had already been kicked up to speed by something like a laser beaming system as whether or not it would cause orbital infrastructure to develop while we are building the thing, oh yeah. I mean, even uh, the relatively small Orion generation ships, you know, because you can use them like going to Mars, of course, too, they're smaller. But any of those, like, full-on alks those are all talking about, you're talking about multiple billions of dollars worth of manufacturing going on monthly at that point in time to get one launch. It's big, you know, It's it's maybe not quite like Detroit City, Ford, or GM levels of manufacturing for one ship, but you get up there pretty quick.
1: All right, uh, Pulse Jet. thank you so much for your super chat. How about perchloratase on Mars used for solid rocket fuel to orbit materials?
0: Um, perchlorates. also, that you need to filter out of the soil on Mars if you want to be able to eat food there. Um, yeah, you can use it as a fuel basis. Uh, you can use aluminum and ice off of um, the moon for it, too. You can use aluminum on Mars. You know, there's ice on Mars, definitively, definitely ice on Mars, and there was aluminum on Mars. I don't know what the exact quote is at, but I'd be willing to bet it's somewhere in the the same as the moon and the earth is. There's a lot of aluminum out there in the solar system. Um, and you probably fundamentally have to find the power source for manufacturing there, and then at that point in time, it's just which of them is most easy to actually manufacture with your energy on hand and with the facilities you have on hand. And I'm not a chemist enough to know what the process would be on that, but I would guess you probably want to be using something that doesn't require you to do anything really at pressure or very low pressures in terms of your chemistry because that's every extra you know pound of new metal for piping that doesn't explode under pressure that kind of thing so um whatever that would happen to be with my guess is the preferred method
1: all right ricky simpson is asking if hostile ai is a serious danger
0: yes um hostile ais would be absolutely terrifying um uh, <laughs> I mean, it's Don't hostile you? intelligence. It depends on how smart it is, but if it's even fairly close to human, let alone more than human, think of it as dangerous. A hostile mind is a dangerous thing. And uh, a hostile alien mind, because either it's an AI, or you know it's inhuman, whether it's like an uplifted shark or chimpanzee, uh, or it comes from another galaxy, the thing is dangerous, if it has a brain. Your neighbors are dangerous, I and mean, your meat is dangerous. Uh, and that's got the same attached rider on it, though, is um, you know, I think it's a very good idea to avoid making human-intelligent AI for quite some time or uplift the animals that are that smart, partially because if aliens show up tomorrow that are as smart as us, uh, you know, they already exist, there's not much we could do about that if we wanted to, regardless of the ethics. Um, if we actually make an AI that's intelligent, um, or an animal that we've uplifted to intelligence, at that point we've got a bit of an ethical responsibility for them, too, and I don't think that really permits us to start doing things like putting kill switches in them for safety measures. Uh, in which case you're now dealing with something that's very intelligent, very dangerous, and apparently hostile. Not a good thing. Right? No,
1: that does sound rather intimidating.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say if you want an example of why to be terrified of hostile AI, I'd recommend to everybody Holland Ellison's classic short story, I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream. It's It, it teaches you why it's good to be afraid of AI.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Silver Harlow, thank you for your super chat. And H has a question. If, let's say, humans start colonizing Mars by 2040, when do you think the first independent states will start popping up? And how would their economy and culture look?
0: <sighs> you know, we talked about this a little bit in, the, well, I think in one of our queen Mars episodes, but a little bit in our Battle for the Moon episode. I always assume independent states will be, I mean, you might have a couple pop up as micronations that will almost more of like... This nation now exists because it broke away from this big country and this other big country wanted to thumb their nose at them and is, is basically bankrolling the whole operation. There should be very few occasions where you have independent nations starting up in this solar system until they are full enough in the future that you got millions and millions of people at them. Uh, solar systems, besides ours, they have to be independent nations from day one because they can't get contact home. Otherwise, you should assume you almost always stay with your parent nation, even if you got one that you basically, like, have on a potato like Switzerland agrees to be your legal representative for importation customs and UN, right?
1: <laughs> Huntus Farmer, thank you for your f- super chat. And he says, thank you for all you to do. Question: Warp drive when? 2150,
0: 2510? 9900,
1: <laughs> Warp drive never. Um,
0: warp drive, uh, never. warp, draw, warp uh, drive never? I don't
1: think that was the answer he was looking for. Can you Fish around and find a different answer.
0: See episode <laughs> on <of> warp drives.
1: <laughs> um, is that all?
0: Oh yeah, I'm <laughs> trying to get through some more of them fast. Warp S-
1: drive. have you read Inhibitor Phase by A. Reynolds, and did you like it?
0: Uh, you know, I actually just finished up that long, long ago, and uh, I will say that I mean it's. He's still one of my favorite sci-fi. authors, was probably my favorite. Uh, That's one of my favorite series, but I didn't. I felt like it was a little bit of a weak fourth book for the main trilogy and, and, and borrowed a lot of elements that were already done better in Chasm City and Redemption Hulk. But it was a good book. It was better than most sci fi I've read, but I didn't think it was quite up to the standard of that trilogy. So, okay. Well, of course, expectations just grow with years, too. It's been a long time was in the series. True. I definitely recommend that trilogy to one, though.
1: <laughs> Rafflecopter Kerman. You mentioned in Fleet of Stars that you could pack enough red dwarves together to black hole the civilization. Do you think that star cluster would continue existing in that galactic mass black hole?
0: Um, the idea being that if you just keep packing enough matter in one place, at some point it falls in the event horizon. Uh, there's some issues there with frame dragging as you're putting stuff in there, but uh, I think that would continue to exist. Yeah, I think if you build something that big, you just find yourself on the other side of that event horizon. You keep seeing stuff falling in from the other side. Of course, You'd like the universe be walled off of you, but everybody else would suddenly see you kind of disappear.
1: Okay, Krastos wants to know, Hey Isaac, what are your thoughts about the dark forest theory? Greetings from Swiss.
0: Zero episode, fully paradox, dark forest theories.
1: <laughs> Wait, we actually have a whole one theory. Yeah, on we have dark a whole episode
0: dark forest theory.
1: All right, yeah. awesome. Thought criminal, what do you think would be the implications of the simulation hypothesis being proven correct? If we could prove we lived in simulation, would you act any differently?
0: No. Um, you know, the simulation theory is potentially... Exactly identical, but depending on flavor, to uh, the universe was created by God, a group of gods, Brahma in a sleeping state, etc. All you're doing is substrating the word computer in there, which, when you think about it, when it's being built at a higher level than you, probably doesn't even run on silicon, for instance, uh, Basically, makes it meaningless to call it a computer at that point. It's just, is there a higher layer of reality that created and controls this one? And that can vary a bit, but that's, that's what you're looking at at that point in time. Um, people are going to have themselves adjusted exactly as they would if they found out tomorrow that, you know, Brahma was real and was here, for instance.
1: Right? Vali Abiu, hello from Romania. Love the show. With the upcoming launch of James Webb, will you make an episode about clandestine alien spy telescopes that are watching us now?
0: Um, that actually sounds like a really awesome episode idea. Uh, yeah. Spying aliens. Um if All I can right. think of a cool name for that and remember it until after we're on the Q&A, probably. I like that idea. He
1: says clandestine Clandestine
0: aliens. aliens. Clandestine aliens. Someone on the team sent me an email or message about that so I don't forget it. <laughs> Next
1: question. Alright. Thank you, Merv Johnson, for your super chat. And he wants to know if an accelerator launch loop would have to be enclosed with, c- which constrains ship design options or is it always best used for cargo pods rather than ships?
0: Um, you could do a really long one. The the big thing that we always have to remember about the acceleration process is that you know, when we say things like Tony radius in order to like, turn a ship before it, it would crush you, the 1G twenty radius around this planet, or the 0.98 one, is actual orbital velocity. That's exactly how that works. If you want to turn around at roughly orbital velocity, you need the radius of the planet to do it in. Um, and uh, if you want to do a linear accelerator like that, a big long one, basically the same thing applies. You have to have a lot of distance the faster you want to be going when you come out of it. And you get around that by a higher acceleration rate, so you can do it faster for a cargo pod. But you could build a big, long one that was just between like here and Pluto if you wanted to. And uh, send something out of, the gal- out of the solar system at um, I got like a 10th light speed we got out or something like that. The actual mechanics and engineering for that would probably be nigh impossible, though.
1: I think I uh, skipped Silver Harlow's question earlier. They gave us a super chat. Thank you again and their question was, any hope for geothermal power before it's too late to help?
0: Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I tend not to like answers that involve like too late. Obviously, if everybody on the planet's actually dead, then it's too late, but uh, I tend to feel like the best time to do something that was last week is still tomorrow. Geothermal is awesome for passive cooling and heating, or even semi-active heating and cooling, um, but I don't think it was the main power supply option, not, not really for the levels we want to go to. And we, you know, again, Solo has really improved. One of the reasons why we're doing that Future of solo episode in, uh, in a couple months here is because that actually has hit that point where it's economically viable now, or at least very, very close to it. So,
1: All right. And from Isaac Bordeaux, what do you think of the private fusion companies such as Commonwealth Fusion Systems?
0: Uh, I mean, there's too many of them that are working on it for me to comment on individually, like uh, Polywell, for instance. I know of them a little bit better. They'll working hard at it. I don't know if they're going to succeed, but they are working hard at it. Whereas you got some got something like Cold fusion style companies that are working hard on scamming folks out of the cash. And uh, you'd have to look at each individual company to know which one's violent, but most of them really are working on a fairly basic premise of like Takamax, etc., and they're just seeing where they can get with it.
1: This one sounds cool. Daniel wants to know, if you do speaking tours, and if so, would you be willing to do one in Australia? The answer um, is only if I'm coming with you.
0: D- d- oh, there you go. That's your <laughs> answer. Uh, I don't do speaking in public too often, especially with COVID, but uh, I like the next one I'm set to do is I- in L.A. for the Van Corporation in early March, and I think I'm doing one at Glenn uh, Space Center here in Ohio sometime in May. The
1: NASA
0: Glenn. Yeah, the yeah, NASA Glenn one. And um, that's the only two I have scheduled at the moment. They've I've done a fair number by Zoom, but that's... Not important.
1: All right, JVal90, thank you for your super chat. I think he's renaming us. He says, hello, authorities.
0: (laughs) Authorites.
1: Arthurites? I thought it was authorities. You know, you're the authority on everything space and futurism. (laughs) So my mother actually grew up near you in Amish country. What do you think of the idea of Amish Martians?
0: I think that they are probably, if, if your goal is to minimize your technological usages, you know, uh, I would say you'd actually be better off with someone you know, commissioning you an and O'Neill Cylinder than trying to actually do a place like Mars. Um, planets, unless they're like Venus with a solar shade, would be pretty stable, but by and large, terraforming planets isn't really your answer for finding a good place to live that's low-tech. You're really all better off at that point hiring an engineering company to build you something and maintain it. Um, but that's gonna obviously depend on, you know, which particular brand of, uh, anti-technology or non-technology you're favoring.
1: Okay. Uh, super chat I'm kind of curious
0: what part though, It's said he was from the area. <laughs> or well, maybe? Oh, right. We're on. Sure. Yeah.
1: He didn't specify. Orion Spur, thank you for your super chat. And he wants to know, what are the odds that all the recent UAPs are simply standard issue alien AI probes recording B-roll footage for a galactic nature documentary or reality show?
0: To be honest, that's a pretty good option compared to a lot of the ones I've heard. It's kind of up there with my one about uh, how they might be playing like basically running traffic while they steal from the Smithsonian or comic book collections or so forth. <laughs> mm-hmm. You got time for a few more? Yeah, yeah I think okay,
1: so. Uh, Thought Criminal says, Isaac, what is your opinion of eternalism? Do you think Einstein was right about time being an illusion and that all of eternity exists at the same time?
0: Um, I mean, if you look at a multiverse setup where you have basically every possible state the universe could be configured into, existing as one universe then at that point in time, you really need time, time just becomes your position in terms of which of those you happen to be in. Um, and that's a valid way to look at it, especially if that turns out to be true. But you know, people often ask, why doesn't multiverses violate conservation of energy, and there's two answers there. One, we don't actually know that it, that it matters if there's any you know, violation of that. It's not necessarily making a whole new universe though, as the other one, that's just where are you in that quantum position. But I, I don't, I tend to think that I really am not a big fan of multiverse theory, to be honest. I'm a Copenhagen person. One time, one reality, it moves forward. But that's just my preference, not my scientific opinion.
1: So Tactical Gamer says Hey, Isaac, will there be a multi alien species you in in the future?
0: You know, I loved the TV show Babylon 5, and I loved the game Mass Effect 1 through 3, my last 20 minutes of, of, of Mass Effect 3. Um,. And uh, ironically, it's probably the newest video game I've played much. Um, (laughs) But um, I really don't think that's very likely. I really couldn't see that setup coming out too much. One thing, it's it's very reliant on the idea that there'd be fashion-like travel and communication. Uh, In the absence of that, I really don't see that happening too much. Though, again, you could easily have Dyson Swarms that were, you know, big melting pots uh, of all sorts of local civilizations. So maybe kind of, sort of, but probably not in that interstellar empires kind of way.
1: Okay. Mark Carter says, if we prove primordial black holes are true with craters on the moon, could we harness their energy?
0: Um, the thing about that is we'd actually have to be able to say there was enough of them at good enough density that we could find them, and then you have to go with the effort of like actually low one specifically, getting its vector down well enough that you could actually set up something around it to serve as a power generator, and then you know, again, it's probably not giving out very strong Hawking radiation, because if it was, they'd be a lot more visible. Um, but either tapping that or finding some way to force feed it and get to spit out more material, and that's, you know, that's iffy. But, yes, it is possible if they exist.
1: Okay, I'm just going to do a few more here. Mm-hmm. Robert, when do you think humans will see the first space-born generation living their entire lives off-world?
0: I'm not sure if anyone's ever lived their entire life uh, off of you know the the, the six main continents. Uh, like I don't think anyone's ever been born in Antarctica. Obviously, there are a lot of people been born on islands that are not part of one of the continents, but like nobody's ever been born out and lived their entire life or the vast majority of their life at McMurdo in Antarctica. Um, so I would actually guess something like that. Probably not until you are looking at having populations of at least a few thousand on a given asteroid or planet. And, of course, that first interstellar colony would have that, too. So not for a century, probably.
1: All right. And bandit 13 how likely do you think true AI will be invented and not just really an advanced algorithmic scripting?
0: I mean, you can always take the standpoint that humans are an advanced algorithmic screen, uh, scripting at that point. But I would say we already have AI. But I mean, not the ones that people really want where, you know, it's like, a genuinely toying compliant advanced intelligence that could really pass for human uh, and not in some kind of weird circumstance like, oh, everyone can be forwarded to thinking it's a human when it's pretending to be an eight-year-old boy who doesn't speak the particular language he's talking in natively. Um, <laughs> um, soon, though. Next 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. Even if assuming that you don't want to say the already exist to some degree anyway.
1: Well, it looks like we're out of time for today, and we'll have to queue up some of these questions for the next go round. But... Uh been great being on the show with you.
0: Oh, I, I think that was our cue to go ahead and wrap up for the day. So again, we will be uh, starting off December very shortly here, and the episode for that is going to be our For paradox episode looking at digital miniaturization. And um, uh, we have a lot of ones up for the rest of the month, and we will see you again for our live stream, which I think is on, like, the 30th of next month. So right towards the end of things, but not actually on New Year's.